0: Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. Bridget Brennan is the Special Narcotics Prosecutor for the City of New York. Responsible for prosecuting major drug-related crime that stretches over the city's five boroughs, Bridget has experienced severe changes in the narcotics landscape since taking the role two decades ago. Today, the country is being ravaged by fentanyl, and New York is no different. Pouring in from Mexico, this cheap and easily concealable drug is finding its way into everything, from cocaine to heroin and prescription pills like Oxy and Xanax. With a fatal dose equating to a little fingernail, getting the importation and distribution of this under control is critical. Today we talk about how this is being done, the interesting nuances of New York City in this regard, and more philosophically about the war on drugs. Please enjoy my conversation with Bridget Brennan. For our third installment of the New York City City Hall miniseries, I'm battling through a little bit of a cold, but I didn't want to delay the opportunity to speak with our guest today. Bridget, I think this is going to be a great conversation, uh, in part because it's about an area that is really on the fringes of what most people think of when we talk local government. So to kick things off, would love for you to briefly speak through your role as the special narcotics prosecutor for the city of New York, uh, I guess, as well as the origin of the agency, maybe more broadly as well.
1: Sure. My office has the ability to prosecute narcotics offenders throughout New York City. New York City, unlike most cities, has uh, five separate jurisdictions within it, five boroughs. They include Manhattan, Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, and Staten Island. Because of that, each of those boroughs has an elected district attorney who can prosecute crimes in his own county, his or her own county narcotics crimes tend to flow from county to county. And so in 1971, uh, during the heroin epidemic, the original heroin epidemic in New York City, our office was created because to effectively prosecute narcotics crimes, and heroin is a critical uh, narcotic drug, It was important to be able to cross over from one county to the other. New York City has long been a major importation site for international trafficking, and that goes back to the uh, 1970s. And so it was uh, thought that that would be the most effective way to prosecute narcotics crimes. Narcotics includes heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, uh, addictive opioid pills, and our jurisdiction also includes related crimes.
0: Fantastic. So given that it is quite a a technical office and probably isn't as obvious as let's say parks and recreation, could you provide kind of an example of a life cycle of a case basically from when maybe your office or whomever, whatever agency first gets notified of a potential lead through the investigation process and actually to prosecution? Because I think this will help our listeners better maybe visualize and understand exactly the work that your office undertakes.
1: Sure. Our office, um, because New York City is such a hub for many things, for theater, for finance, but also for international narcotics trafficking. Because of that, we work with a lot of federal agencies and a lot of uh, organizations outside of New York City and New York State. And a good example of a relatively recent case that we did Began with some information that came from outside of New York State and was provided to my office. Uh, and in connection with that, we started uh, investigators started to observe and follow an individual whom uh, they had good information was trafficking in heroin and fentanyl. And as they were following him, they observed him carrying a heavy bag outside of a building. And the information, what they observed, corroborated information that they had learned from from confirmed sources, but confidential sources. They had um, various facts that they had learned, well, they had been investigating this individual. And then it was confirmed by their observations. And so they stopped him based on the information that they had. This happened last year, around this time, around December of last year, and recovered a very significant amount of uh, drugs from him. They recovered, I think it was about The initial stop yielded about 20 kilos of drugs from him, uh, which turned out to be fentanyl and heroin. And so then they went back to the original location and they obtained through court process a search warrant to go back into that location. When they went back into that location, there were more drugs inside and they also found what we call packaging materials in order to distribute drugs like heroin and fentanyl in New York City and really across the U.S. Often it's packaged in tiny little envelopes. They're called glassine bags here in the States, and they're um, the type of envelope, envelope that you might find a single um, mailing stamp in. And so they found these stamps there. They found other paraphernalia that indicated Narcotics uh, packaging was going on. And so they did further investigation. and They learned who else was connected to the site. And they also had information about the other individuals who were connected. They got a warrant for one of the individuals connected to that site. And they stopped him uh, about three weeks later. Initially, in the first stop, not only did they recover uh, drugs, but they also recovered a gun. And when they stopped the um, individual, they recovered about $16,000 in narcotics proceeds from the woman who was believed to be his wife. And then they followed up further they obtained financial information and records, including records from the wife, because they could see that she too had been involved in the narcotics trafficking. Among the financial records that they recovered was a receipt for a storage locker not too far away. And when they uh, entered the storage locker, they found a very large stash of guns. Uh, This was about a week after, or excuse me, two weeks after the initial uh, arrest of the subject uh, they had been looking for. And so they found uh, five semi-automatic guns, including three Mac 11 submachine guns, magazines for all the guns, uh, ammunition. And so all of the individuals, the individual that they had arrested was charged with possession of these. The information was brought before a judge. One of the individuals now, it's been a year, has already pled guilty and is facing seven and a half years in prison one is awaiting trial and that trial will probably be conducted in late 2022 and another has been uh, released after bail so that's the kind of comprehensive case that we do had we not seized all those drugs literally millions of glass scenes uh containing these drugs could have been distributed throughout the United States. You know, the guns were really large, dangerous guns and we're having an issue of violence here in New York City. And so taking these guns off the street and eliminating anyone's access to them was critically important. It's another thing that we are very concerned about during narcotics investigations is any association between guns and drugs. But it literally, um, millions of dollars worth of drugs were taken off the street, cash was seized, and guns were recovered. And it started with information that someone had developed outside of New York City and was shared with us during the course of the investigation. The drugs were recovered in Queens, one of the counties in New York City, and the guns were recovered in Brooklyn another county. And so it sort of exemplifies the significance of having a special narcotics prosecutor with jurisdiction, the ability to prosecute in all five counties of the city.
0: What a uh, a fantastic account. It feels like a it was an entire episode of Law and Order summarized within four minutes. So I really enjoyed that. Following on from that very final point, in terms of exemplifying the importance of that cross-jurisdictional cooperation, Let's look at maybe another major metropolitan area that doesn't have the exact same setup as New York City does, and i don't we don't have to pick on another specific city like Chicago or l a or wherever. but how does the lack of kind of an interjurisdictional agency impact the district attorney or whomever was tasked with overseeing this in those cities?
1: New York City is actually unique in the fact that it's broken down into five different counties. Other cities don't generally fall into that. They There may be um, in the metropolitan area, several counties, but perhaps not within the city itself. So it's unique in that way. And so you have a confluence of things going on. There's the fact that you have uh, multiple uh, jurisdictions within New York City, multiple counties within New York City, each with its own elected prosecutor. And then it's also a hub. It's a hub for international activity of all kinds. And because of that, it be, has become a hub for narcotics trafficking, uh, very large amounts of narcotics. Uh, most of the na- heroin and fentanyl that we see is now in New York City originates uh south of the border it's in mexico it is coming in through one of our international markets marketplaces uh one of the trucking markets one of the big hubs and so from there uh, because new york has so many routes of transportation it can go out in many different directions and cross over not just our own uh intracity jurisdictional boundaries but then state borders and the like, but I don't can't think of another city, at least not in the United States, that has the same kind of construction, you know, where it's broken down the way this city is.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And also touching on that previous answer as well, you'd mentioned really the the surge in gun violence that we've seen Honestly, since the beginning of COVID and a previous guest, Marcus Solo, the director of criminal justice for the city of New York touched on this as well. And he drew a bit of a a weaving narrative um, in terms of how criminal justice has evolved within the city of New York, kind of since the seventies, since the early two thousands and through to today. Would you be able to Bridget, maybe even just from the time you initially came in a couple of decades ago, share how the narcotics landscape has changed and evolved within New York City in the past couple of decades?
1: Sure. Interestingly, I think you can track the history of the office back to the first heroin epidemic in New York City, which was in the 1970s. And at that time, the source of the drugs uh, was Asia. They were heavily diluted. There were extraordinary rates of overdose death. But the picture was very different. Uh, the average age of overdose death was 22. Most of the vast majority of those dying were men. Like today, many people dying uh, were impoverished and people of color. That is the reason, actually, special narcotics began to address that heroin epidemic. Uh, and the office was set up. It was small at that time. There were only about less fewer than a dozen employees, all of them men. Uh, and they focused on the kingpins. Uh, at that time, there were the drugs were coming in from Asia. The coordination was through criminal organizations, uh, both within New York City and outside New York City, and then uh, more local criminal organizations, mainly centered in Harlem. And the office was involved in major investigations into people who have become well known because movies have been uh, made about them like Nikki Barnes uh, and others. But then uh, as that uh, problem faded out, Crack cocaine became a major problem in New York City, and it fueled a lot of violence. The greatest number of homicides ever was during that era. But that had to do with street dealing of drugs, with very low-level dealing of drugs. And so a lot of special narcotics focus was on lower-level crimes at that time, lower-level dealing. By the time I came into the office, uh, I had been a homicide prosecutor during that era, And it was important to me to get on what I consider to be the front end of the problem, not to just look at the low level uh, crack operations, not to only try to solve homicides, but to try to cut off the major supplies of cocaine. Uh, and my office, then, then I came over to Special Narcotics and the office that I was working in, the part of Special Narcotics, uh, I didn't come over as head of the agency. I came over as a bureau chief and we were focused on international importation of cocaine. Eventually, I became head of the agency. Cocaine faded out and then we started to see the opioid crisis. Uh, First, it appeared we saw um, the proliferation of addictive prescription pills on illegal markets. Then we saw heroin following that, heroin coming across the southwest border, and now fentanyl. And so as the drug challenges have changed, so too has the focus of the Special Narcotics Prosecutor's Office. It's been around now for about 50 years Focuses have changed, the drug problems have changed, and our approach to them has changed as well. Certainly, at the time the office was founded, there wasn't as much focus on strategies like treatment, harm reduction strategies, those kinds of things. Although, before the office was founded and before some of the more punitive measures came in in New York State, there was a big push uh, for treatment. Treatment at that time was in drug treatment programs were in their infancy, but the state set up a mechanism for committing people to drug treatment, but there was no way to keep people in and the programs weren't uh, very effective and it didn't work. So the state then threw up its hands and focused on prosecutions. I think we're seeing a swing away from that now, which is good, and we're trying to incorporate all possible solutions to address the drug problem now, from enforcement and prosecutions to drug treatment to other uh, harm reduction strategies, which might be effective in ameliorating the problem.
0: We've spoken about fentanyl quite a bit already in the conversation, and obviously it's just become more and more of an issue as the years are, are rolling on. I still think a lot of people probably don't fully understand why it is such a topic of conversation, how destructive it is and how revolutionary it has been. What has the agency's experience been with fentanyl and why is this situation different in terms of risks or the distribution to more of those maybe traditional narcotics?
1: Fentanyl is an absolute killer. It is uh, up to 50 times more potent than heroin the amount that can kill you would fit on the tip of your baby finger and it can be easily hidden concealed in other both drugs that drugs sold on the street some of which uh, might be illegal drugs like cocaine and heroin or it might be pressed into counterfeit prescription pills and the people buying them might think they're buying illegally they're buying, but they're purchasing legally manufactured pills with, you know, content that they can count on. Uh, Fentanyl has been a complete game changer. Fentanyl is a completely chemical product. And because of that, it is much, much cheaper than heroin to manufacture. And it is much more potent than heroin. And so for the smuggler, It's a dream product. They can get many more uh, glassine bags, many more doses out of a kilogram at a much lower price to manufacture and charge just as much on the street. So it's a dream product to them. To the user, it's a killer. In New York City and across the country, uh, health officials have pointed out the escalating rates of overdose death and have linked that to fentanyl.
0: Super quick follow-up question, and I'm not sure if the data does exist for this. Is there any indication as to the proportion of overdose deaths from fentanyl that are a consequence of deliberate intake of fentanyl versus people accidentally taking it as it's been pressed into other drugs that they were maybe intending to take?
1: No, it's really very, very difficult to uh, kind of isolate that. Generally speaking, our information about overdose deaths comes from toxicology results after somebody has died and that are performed after an autopsy. But the only way to really understand what somebody has ingested, since it all becomes mixed up within the body, is if you are able to obtain a sample, um, maybe if there was uh, perhaps a pill bottle next to them when they died or some drugs left over from the batch that they had taken. But usually we're not able to obtain that. We've tried to obtain that. We've worked with teams here in New York City that are called uh, teams of police officers called uh, overdose response teams that are tasked with collecting that kind of evidence after an overdose death so we can try to understand what has caused the overdose. I think it's critically important that we try to inform uh, people who may be using illegal drugs as as best we can uh, about the dangers they might be facing. Now, there is some information that some people do seek out fentanyl. Uh, Some people like the high. It comes more quickly and it's much more profound. And some people don't like the high because it comes quickly and it passes quickly and it kind of knocks them out. It does have its following, but it is mixed. We have found it to be mixed now with cocaine, cocaine, Sometimes it's pressed into uh, the the favorite pill on the uh, diversion market is called the blue. It's a 30 milligram oxycodone pill. And we found it pressed into pills that look very like the original pills. Uh, And so it's just mixed up in so many things. Now, sometimes it's sold as Xanax. You know, anybody who's buying on the illegal market really uh, faces the risk of ingesting fentanyl.
0: So since really last March, the whole concept of criminal justice and public safety within the US and really in a broader global context has changed and the narrative around it has changed as well in terms of what communities expect from their policing agencies. How, if at all, has that impacted the work that you're doing around narcotics?
1: It's been a number of things, obviously coronavirus, and that's had an impact on really manpower and resources in law enforcement agencies that we work with, along with everything else. There are a lot fewer uh, resources available, meaning there are a lot fewer police officers available to do the kind of work that we're doing. We work very closely with the DEA as well. And of course, the DEA continues uh, to do this kind of work because it's their mission. But the NYPD, for example, has been uh, focusing on many other things uh, over the past year, year and a half, um, both in terms of demonstrations And then many of them were affected by COVID themselves. There are many people who took ill and there's been a surge in violence and that has to take top priority. And so at that level, our work has been affected more so than at the highest levels, I would say. But what that does to us is it does not allow us necessarily to get insight into the street level markets for drugs. And so where we might be able to see um, how pills are being distributed or how this particular drug is being distributed and which ones are mixed with fentanyl, we don't have the same insight. And so we're not able to sound the alarm the way we might have been at a different time.
0: Yep, makes makes a lot of sense. I imagine it feels challenging in your role, Bridget, year over year, putting so much effort into curbing this affliction within our society, yet seeing it effectively grow and grow each year and simply new heads kind of sprouting off this beast like we've seen with fentanyl. And I imagine as a result, it can sometimes feel like pushing a bit of a boulder uphill with the influx never really ending, right? You're at the end. Um, However, that distribution is still from this case south of the border. What are some of the objectives maybe on a more broader and strategic level you're working towards? to enable you to maintain the same level of drive after doing this for for quite some time?
1: I don't see it quite that way. What I've seen in my years of working on this is actually a lot of success. I mean, I began doing narcotics work during the crack epidemic, and we saw crack really recede. And crack claimed a lot of lives. The drug itself claimed a lot of lives. The homicides, the violence were at epic rates. They haven't reached those rates again, and I hope they never do. That receded. And, you know, eventually another drug took hold, and those were legal prescription pills that were being way overprescribed and then being sold on the illicit market. And so, again, we started to address that problem. Now, people who use the illicit drugs moved over to heroin because it was a lot cheaper. Uh, During that time, but we were able to rein in uh, the prescription drugs. You know, you hear people say it just pushed people over to heroin, but that's not what we observed. We observed people who began their addictions moving over to heroin simply because it was cheaper. Now there's fentanyl. And I have great confidence, just with all, as with all the other crises that we have faced, that we'll rein this one in too. It requires uh, a lot of strategy, a lot of thought, determination. And in this instance, uh, because we're dealing with a foreign country that's so close to us, it's going to require um, significant international cooperation, I think, to get the job done. But I have great confidence that eventually we will. And I look at the lives recovered. I mean, I look at the lives recovered from many respects because we uh, have long offered uh, alternative programs where where people go through rehabilitation and I see lives recovered. And that's very, very encouraging to me. It makes it all worthwhile.
0: 100%. I think that was a, a fantastic rebuttal to my uh, rather pessimistic question. Are we talking about ultimately a demand or, or a supply issue? We've talked a lot about, Mexico in terms of where these drugs are flowing through from. However, if we were able to effectively target and constrain supply, would supply just shift to another drug, to another geography? Would it really make a difference? Or does the underlying driver of drug abuse, which really is is despair and oftentimes economic despair, mean that people will continue to search out some means of relief by whichever way is necessary?
1: I think that People have always, I mean, uh, through the millennia, they've sought relief. Alcohol, and you go back to ancient uh, works of art, you hear references to morphine. So clearly, people have always sought relief. Some drugs are extremely dangerous in terms of addiction, um, how it, they change your brain very significantly significantly. And so if we try to curb access to those drugs, and for example, with respect to the addictive prescription pills, that was a big entry point for many people to begin their addiction. They never intended to look for escape. They were over-prescribed drugs, which created a dependence, um, a physical dependence. And if they didn't have the same level of opioid in their system, they felt like they were going to die. Uh, they weren't seeking out anything, but uh, relief from their pain. They weren't trying to gain pleasure from that. And it happened uh, inadvertently and unexpectedly. And so I don't think there's an inevitability of addiction and overdose death at the levels that we're seeing it now. Just like everything over time, things wax and wane. And I think this will too.
0: We have a uh, a pretty simple traditional closing question here at City Hall Stories and and very curious how you choose to answer this. Could be specifically related to narcotics, it could be more broadly, um, but it's pretty simple. What is one accepted truth of local government that you believe is incorrect?
1: I think there's an assumption that local government must always have a very narrow reach. And I think our agency is... An extraordinary example that local government has a much further reach than one might think. The impact of our work across the country and across the city and how our work is affected by international criminal organizations and geopolitical forces has been profound.
0: Bridget, I think this one totally lived up to to my expectations and I really enjoyed the completely different angle you brought to the realm of local government. So thank you for the work you've tirelessly pursued for so many decades and also for your time today.
1: Thank you very much, Jack. Take care. Take care of that cold too.
0: (laughs) It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.